This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Welcome to Beyond Politics. I'm Matt Robeson. We're broadcast on WKXL, available wherever you get your podcasts. Today, we have a story for you, and it starts with something you may have heard before. We know that that polls are just a collection of statistics that reflect what people are thinking in reality. And reality has a well-known liberal bias. That was Stephen Colbert, and he was joking. But the thing is, conservatives in America didn't think it was funny. They didn't even think it was a joke. In the 1970s, Conservatives began to believe that the places where people in government got their information, got their basic facts, were inherently liberal. They didn't like the answers they were hearing from universities, scientists, and research groups on what government should do, what policies we should follow. So some of them decided that they needed a whole different regime of knowledge and analysis, a different way of looking at the world that would justify the policies that they wanted to see. They started new institutions, the Heritage Foundation, the American Enterprise Institute, that would be the vanguard of a new conservative ecosystem of ideas, all aimed at explicitly justifying conservative policy. Eventually, as these institutions grew more successful, liberals followed suit. Today, we live in a world of deep polarization. Our two political tribes don't seem to agree on anything. And nowadays, they sometimes can't even agree on what reality is. Remember this? Sean Spicer, our press secretary, gave alternative facts. So how did we get here? Can we trace it, or at least a big part of it, back to this moment when the fundamental way each party came to view reality began to be so consciously engineered? Our guest, E.J. Fagan, is an assistant professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of Illinois at Chicago. He's an expert on political parties, Congress, think tanks, and the way we set the agenda for what our government should do. He's working on a history of these institutions, and he's here to help us trace those threads back and hopefully help us understand a little better why we landed here and maybe how to get out. EJ, welcome to Beyond Politics. Matt, thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure to have you, and this is a fascinating story, and I, I it really lands us in an incredibly important place for understanding where we are in politics today. Now, you wrote recently that distrust of nonpartisan scientific research continues a trend that began at conservative think tanks in the 1970s. They regard that all economic policy research that does not originate from the Heritage Foundation and the American Enterprise Institute are liberal, even if conducted by nonpartisans. So that's where we are now. How did all of this get started? What's that story of the birth of this movement to create an explicitly conservative ecosystem of policy? You know, I think it all starts actually before that moment in the 1970s and starts in the 1950s. And this is a point in time when we're seeing the modern conservative ideology form, something forms that, you, that, would, that would resemble, something you would, you would recognize today as conservatism. And that is you know, the combination of laissez-faire economics, of religious conservatism, of a white racial identity, these all formed together, initially brought together by a, a political entrepreneur named William F. Buckley. William F. Buckley is at Yale University. He's a conservative. 
and he sees kind of the package of conclusions that faculty at Yale University are teaching, things like kind of modern neo-Keynesian economics, like, like racial equality, some, some versions of cultural relativism. And he sees all of these things and says that that is, that's wrong. I don't, I don't agree with that. And he writes a book called God and Men at Yale. And this book really catalyzes that modern conservative ideology. And inherent in that book and in the National Review, which he, he founds a few years later, which, it, which was until recently a, a large print magazine for, for, for conservatism, is a critique of that system, of a system, of the system that produced those, you know, those basic scientific conclusions and, and, and some ideas about, about religion and culture that, that really forms the basis of this ideology. But what's interesting is that it doesn't catch on. So that, that's the 1950s. Throughout the 1950s, 1960s, and most of the 1970s, we have a very political system, political system where the Republicans and Democrats both worked to vastly expand the scope of the federal government to establish programs today that we think of as, as you know, represented by the Democratic Party, but things like the Environmental Protection Agency, Medicaid, Medicare, and a variety of other social programs were all deeply bipartisan when they were established. Uh, and they were broadly participated in or even led by uh, Republican leaders in Congress and Republican presidents. But conservative activists, the activists that read William F. Buckley, that staffed the Barry Goldwater campaign and others, they, they were not happy with this, with this, this status quo. They, they observed essentially a betrayal by their, 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 their co-partisans, by, by the elites in their political party, whom they, they, they claimed were conservative. Richard Nixon used to call himself a conservative. Gerald Ford used to call himself one of the most conservative people in Washington. But Republicans, Republican activists saw this as a betrayal. In fact, you can even see that through, through today. They still use this language of betrayal all the time when discussing their intensely conservative political elites. And so there was something wrong. And uh, a lot of political scientists have tried to try and trace the why eventually this changes. Eventually, the Republican Party starts to move very, very quickly to the right. And they do it before the Democratic Party moved to the right. That, that transition begins in the late 1970s. And I, 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 went, I went back to look for, for causes of this. And a lot of the causes that people point to just didn't begin in the 1970s. So they couldn't have caused this. So for example, the electorate, the American people, they don't begin to polarize until the 2010s, so 2010 or 2011, which is much later than people, people believe. If you look at people's beliefs, their ticket splitting patterns, their self-described ideology, all of that's very non-polarized and doesn't really change from the 1950s all the way through up until that point in the 2010s. You look at other things like the, the Civil Rights Act being signed in 1964, realigning the South. That's signed 15 years before, before polarization begins to increase. And a number of other things where we're, we're all kind of looking for causes. And the cause that I point to is a moment in 1973 when a think tank called the Heritage Foundation is formed. So the Heritage Foundation is formed by three Republican Party activists. They're, they're staffers. It's actually two staffers and one heir to the, the Corps' brewing fortune. They found an institution called the Heritage Foundation. And what the Heritage Foundation is is a think tank, but it's different from all of the think tanks that came before it. The think tanks that came before it were intensely influential, but they were essentially universities. They, these big organizations like the Brookings Institution, the Rand Corporation, the Urban Institute, the American Enterprise Institute, these were large organizations that existed before this moment in 1973. Uh, and they employed people like me, people with PhDs doing scientific research. Sometimes they had a little bit of, a, of an, ideolo an ideological bent. American Enterprise Institute used to hire conservatives. But they all basically put out information that agreed. It agreed with the government bureaucracies who also put out similar information, sometimes contracted these organizations to do that work. And that was intensely influential information. Everybody bought into it. Whenever, 
when you passed a Medicaid or when you passed a Civil Rights Act or when you passed any of, the, any of these bills, it was often informed by the scientific research. And the, the innovation that these conservative activists saw uh, was that that was getting in the way of their conservatism. They had actually convinced many of their you know, co-partisan elites to, to buy into their ideology, right? They all, the, the, co, the you know, Richard Nixon read the National Review too, but there was no one who was kind of providing that actionable policy advice, the, the actual plans and white papers and reports and late stage stuff you need to turn ideology into political action. And so they found the Heritage Foundation to be a much more aggressive think tank. Instead of a think tank that employs a bunch of kind of university professors doing their own thing, they would act more like an interest group. They produce information, but then they would promote that information. They would strategically uh, choose how to, you know, what stuff to focus on. Um, so what they're saying, yeah, so, so, so what they're saying, what this group that founded the Heritage Foundation is saying is, look, everyone's biased. Everyone has an answer in mind in advance to some extent. Even the scientists who claim to just be going wherever the data takes them have their thumb on the scale. Anyone who says they don't is just kidding themselves. Anyway, this is the story that they're telling. So we're just going to start there. We know where we want to put our thumb. We're not afraid to admit it. In fact, we're proud of it. We want to trumpet it. And we're going to aim for results that support a conservative political philosophy, and we're going to justify them. Yeah, it's a key framing decision, right? So, so if, if the nonpartisans are saying something, it's difficult to, if you accept the credibility and the expertise of those institutions, it's very difficult to, to argue against it. And especially if, if they're saying something that's deeply out of line with what you believe. So I'll give you an example. A recession hits. And most economists would say that there should be some sort of government response to this recession. It might come in different forms. They might disagree upon what, what those forms Those are still very live questions in economics. But most would say that government needs to intervene, especially if we're in something called a liquidity trap, to get people out, to get the, the, the country out of the liquidity trap. And like so the COVID very, relief bills we've seen The recently. COVID relief bill is a good example, even or even the 2009 stimulus bill in response to the banking crisis. However, there are fringe economists who would describe themselves as libertarian economists. They're, they're in the Austrian School of Economics, uh, which comes, comes out of uh, some, some work in response to the Great Recession, sorry, the Great Depression, who argue that, well, actually, we should do nothing that we should, just, we should just allow the economy to, to recover on its own. And that's actually what's best for the economy in the long run. Now, it might take five or six years to bottom out, but then it bottoms out and, and it's better in the long run. And, you know, and, and, and there's, there's, some con- there's some consequences to doing, to doing that, that, uh, that, in that normal stimulus. That is a fringe view in economics. It's a view that is, is supported by a lot of people who are very conservative, but you know, there's, no, there's no world where you know, the American Economic Association would write a letter saying, no, really, we should do nothing about, about uh, these severe recessions. And in fact, most countries ha- adopt a, what we would normally call a Keynesian, although it's a little more complicated than that, response to recessions. Conservatives don't like that. They don't think that government should be intervening in the economy. And so these, uh, these think tanks and, and, and other means of subsidization, I, I don't want to claim that the think tanks are the whole story. I just think they're the most important part of the story. These, these conservative economists, which are now promoted by the system, convinced other members of Congress, not only that you know, they have ideological problems with a government response, which they already had, right? They've already been reading the National Review, they've been reading Ayn Rand, they, they understand all these things, but that actually the, the policy outcome they desire, a healthier economy, is best achieved through these conservative means. Right, so it's an explicitly conservative worldview that presents a whole different perspective, and it, it, it becomes awfully hard for a casual onlooker to say, well, one set of experts is saying this, but these people have PhDs, they're experts, they're saying something totally different. 
So it didn't used to be hard because you could trust the institution, right? So if, if I say, well, look, you know, a respected set of economists at Harvard University and at the Department of Labor, they are, they are you know, they're professionals, they're working all day and they say, this is the answer. That used to be the case, right? You can trust those institutions. And so, you know, even if there's some fringe people who say the opposite, you know, they're wrong. What the great innovation of the Heritage Foundation and others was, was to say, no, 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 right? Those institutions you thought were nonpartisan, they are in fact giving you the liberal answer. And so they're equally as valid as these conservative answers, but that, that's not how science works. So th these, are, these are, I'm not talking about questions of morality, normative questions, questions where, where I think political ideology should really play a role. We, we want parties who have different normative views of what we should do for the country. These are positivist questions. What that means is there's an answer. There is an answer of, you know, what, you know, if I pass this tax cut, what will its impact be on the deficit? Now that answer might be hard to know, right? It might be uncertain, but the scientific process is designed to come to that answer. And it is true that there are, that, that people, especially these days at these universities, at universities, myself included, you know, at universities like UIC, we there, you know, if you sample took a random sample of people at these universities, they'd be more more progressive than than the average population. That's just not how the scientific method works. And, and the science has its own self correction mechanism, right? We, you know, if, if I think that uh, somebody is is wrong, it is in my career best interest to write a scientific paper contradicting them. And that's what we do all day. This, this is the scientific process. This is how it plays out. But it doesn't play out that way when you are artificially subsidizing science, right? So you have these zombie arguments that can live on for very long periods of time because conservatives believe in their heart of hearts, they really do truly believe that these are the correct arguments. But even if they don't stand up to the, to the to scientific test, they don't ever have to go through the, that, that process the way that other scientific ideas do. And so I, I think we've all, a lot of people have bought into this framing that the, the scientific process is liberal because it produces conclusions that conservatives disagree with. Reality has a well-known liberal bias. Right, exactly. Well, and I want to be clear about one point here for our listeners, and then I want to get to the big mystery in all of this. The, the, the point I want to just clarify, and this is something that you were saying to me before we got on the air, is what one might call the George Costanza principle for fans of the show Seinfeld, it's not a lie if you believe it. And you're not saying that these institutions are explicitly lying. What you're saying in your experience is that for the most part, the people doing the analysis there genuinely believe in what they're saying. It's just that they know the argument they wanna make in advance and they explicitly try to support that argument in their work. It's not like what the scientific process is supposed to do. But let's get to the mystery in all of this and I think it's a big one. So in your narrative, 1973, three people, three staffers, I used to be a congressional staffer, they start a think tank. They have access to money. They have an heir to the Coors Brewing fortune. That's a good asset to have, but they're essentially starting from scratch. Let's fast forward for a moment to 2018 and a New York Times article that showed just how complete the penetration of the Heritage Foundation was into the core, the heart of American government. According to the New York Times, by 2018, dozens of heritage employees and alumni had joined the Trump administration, 66 of them with two of them pending Senate confirmation at the most senior levels of the Trump administration. As Ed Fulner, one of those founders of heritage and a former president said, his first law is that people are policy. And clearly heritage foundation people 
were permeating the highest levels of the federal government. In fact, a U.S. senator in 2010, from, from, 20, from 2005 to 2013, actually resigned his seat to become the president of the Heritage Foundation, showing that the flow from think tanks to government had actually reversed, that more power was inherent in an institution like the Heritage Foundation than having a seat in the U.S. Senate. So that's where we landed as of a few short years ago. But in 1973, you had three young people rubbing two sticks together. How did we get from one place to the other? I think there's a couple of a couple of things that that, that play a point uh, a role here. One is that there was there was really well well plowed fields for them to enter into. So you already had 20 years of 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 this ideology forming that 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 was cohesive, that was well developed. There was a lot of political theory out there, and there were beginning to be you know some conservative economists and even some mainstream economists that they could start to draw from. So Milton Friedman's out there publishing things. Friedrich Hayek, he's starting to kind of get a little bit a little bit old at this point, but he he is out there doing a lot of work. A couple of other important things go on. So the the 1950s through 1970s saw the largest expansion in the scope of the federal government in American history. Not the size of the federal government, actually. The government didn't get bigger as a percentage of GDP or every, however you want to measure it, but on the number of issues that government deals with dramatically increases. We, we, they enter all sorts of issue areas like housing policy, environmental policy, civil rights policy, education policy, you name it. Most of the federal government's domestic policy interventions are created during this time. So this gives conservatives something to react to. So they, they were already unhappy with the buildup of the federal government that occurred during the New Deal and, the, and World War II. But that was actually largely popular. Most of, most of, the, most of that was, was very difficult to oppose. But now people were seeing the federal government start to intrude in their daily life a little bit more, right? Their schools had to listen to what the federal government wanted to do. If they wanted to keep black people out of their schools, you know, they 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 had you know they had 101st Airborne showing up at their doorsteps. And a number of these things and you know, a number of these things start to kind of pile up, which kind of gives conservatives an argument. So so they they have they have both you know they have, they're both prepared intellectually and and you know and they have an, an argument that's starting to kind of develop. And then the big thing that happens is Ronald Reagan begins to become the locus of the Republican Party. So he runs in 1976 against Gerald Ford. The Heritage Foundation enthusiastically supports Ronald Reagan's campaign, is highly integrated into that campaign. Now, some similar types before the Heritage Foundation had been integrated into the 1964 Barry Goldwater campaign, but that wasn't a successful campaign. There was infighting among kind of traditional conservatives, kind of big, you know, big business conservatives who weren't really bought into to movement conservatism and kind of the more radical types that would eventually staff places like the Heritage Foundation. And of course, Goldwater lost in a landslide. So the, the lesson learned there was that that stuff you know, loses you elections. Ronald Reagan was a much more successful politician. He was just a better politician than Barry Goldwater. And it was a different time. He had more to react to than Barry Goldwater did in 1964. So he runs and loses in 1976, but then runs and wins in 1980. And the Heritage Foundation essentially was, the, was his number one supporter among elite policy types and they win a seat at the table. The, they produce a document which in, in hindsight is, is just brilliant. Uh, this document called the Mandate for Leadership, which was a massive, I think the, the, the number that they report is 40 pound book, policy recommendations for each federal agency and for the White House. And they give this to, to, to President Reagan. President Reagan famously handed out copies of this giant book to every member of his cabinet during his first cabinet meeting. So they have a real seat at the table. They're, they're really there on the inside and they dramatically increase in size. 
So if you look at the, I've tracked their revenue all the way back to, to, to when they were formed and they just see this huge increase. Um, but Reagan is actually, you know, he, he wasn't as much of an ally as you might think, right? He's actually still trying to solve problems with solutions that will actually solve those problems. Some of those problems have conservative answers and, and viable conservative solutions. He adopts some of those. He has one of the largest tax cuts in American history in the early 1980s. But he also raises taxes to pay for social security a few years later. He, he legalizes uh, millions of undocumented immigrants in the late 1980s. He passes a tax reform that looks nothing like the tax reform of 2017 in 1986. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a deficit neutral tax reform that uh, is regarded by good government people as one of the most important in American history. Really, a really good, really good law, really, uh, law really well informed by experts. So Reagan even isn't, isn't the champion that they thought he was. So this is again forwarding that narrative that, that Republican, you know, Republican politicians, even the good one, even Ronald Reagan begin to be, betray people. George H.W. Bush is a, is, begins to betray them in, in, their, in their minds uh, by raising taxes as part of a budget deal in the 1990s, the early 1990s. And they finally find their champion in Newt Gingrich. Newt Gingrich comes on the scene in 1978. First, he's first elected to Congress and almost immediately begins to change the House of Representatives to a more combative, more conservative uh, Republican conference. When we talk about all those explanations for polarization, people kind of try to find something that happened in the late 1970s that, that caused uh, the, the system to begin to polarize. Uh, one of my, my former mentors, his book says, Newt Gingrich did it, right? And, and, and that's his explanation. And I'm not too sure how well that holds up more recently as we've seen polarization increase after he leaves the scene. But he, he gets involved in these think tanks as big as you can possibly get involved. And uh, you, might, you might be aware of a set of policy proposals called the Contract with America. Contract with America were 10 policy proposals that, that, you, that, you, uh, that uh, Republicans promised to implement if they were elected to Congress in, in, in the 1994 elections. They were elected to Congress, they won. And the next year, they call on the think tanks, basically. Many of those proposals were written by the Heritage Foundation and the American Enterprise Institute. And there are a couple of really important ones. One was to cut the size of, con of Congress's budget. So Congress had built up a fairly, uh, fairly advanced, fairly large staffing capacity. Both um, members of Congress had their own staff, who, many of whom were kind of longtime policy hands and, and paid fairly well and, and were professionals. And also they had agencies uh, that they had established to provide official you know, uh, policy advice, nonpartisan agencies to do much of the work that some of these nonpartisan think tanks would, try, would, would traditionally do. And one of those pledges in the Contract for America, which was written by the Heritage Foundation, was to dramatically cut those staffing levels. Um, those staffing levels just, just uh, I think they go down by about 30% or so in that year. And that is largely replaced with think tank staffing, essentially, with, with, member, with, with think tanks providing outside policy expertise. So if they look, got rid of their competition, essentially. Yes. And, yes. and in absentia, they basically now control the policy agenda. And let me just clarify something real quick. It's not by this point, it's not just the Heritage Foundation. Heritage had created a successful model for conservative think tanks that was copied many, many times. We now refer to this as the advocacy think tank model. It's a model where, as I kind of mentioned a little bit previously, you're you're acting more like an interest group than than just kind of a, a, a detached set of think tanks, where you're really you're really going out there and you're you're aggressively advocating for your goals and and, and you're you're getting your, your co-partisans in the legislature on board. So you've sort of taken over the role that in other democracies, the party itself might do as an internal matter to have kind of a policy creation engine. That's all in our system occupied by these outside groups. In almost every democracy in the world, the political parties have some publicly funded, either directly or indirectly, think tanks to, to provide this policy expertise. The public funding is important. 
funding the patrons of an organization determine its mission. When the, the, the uh, political parties control that mission, the mission is to maximize the number of seats you win in the next election. That's the goal of a political party. And, and so they, pr they produce policy advice that, would help, that will help them do that. That often means doing the right thing, right? Solving problems, effectively providing the best public policy for your constituents. But a privately funded organization, well, those donors have their own, their own interests, their own ideas, their own, their own ideology. And these think tanks, which have now taken that party role, uh, that role that is occupied, that, that, that again, in other countries is, is, is this kind of privileged right-hand man to the king role, that, that's now funded by, by essentially uh, conservative and now some progressive billionaires. And they have very specific policy preferences. They, they don't like their taxes high. They don't like their regulation high. And they don't particularly care what the average voter thinks unless uh, the average voter cares enough about something that it might you know, lose, you know, lose conservatives power in the next election. That's a very different world. It's a very different set of motivations. And this ecosystem in the 1990s is, is huge. It, it's, it involves the Heritage Foundation, the American Enterprise Institute, and one organization that I want to mention here called the Manhattan Institute. And the reason why the Manhattan Institute is important is that they play a very important role in the welfare reform that takes place in the 1990s. So in the 1990s, there, uh, there is a long-standing debate about the welfare system in the United States. And there was a real problem with the welfare system. It's something called a welfare trap, where welfare benefits were structured in a way that uh, created a really strong disincentive to work. That is, if your income went up $1 above a threshold, you lost all of your welfare benefits, which meant that uh, you essentially lost, uh, you lost income by gaining income. And that was a problem. And that was a problem that needed to be solved. But conservatives, they, that wasn't their problem with the welfare system. Their problem with the welfare system was that they had, they like laissez-faire economics. They think it is wrong to provide people welfare. And that's, you know, that's fine. That's an ideological objection to, to a public policy. That, that's normal in, in politics. But the question was not, was not the, the question at hand was not this ideological question. It was, how do we fix this welfare system? And what are the harms of, of this welfare system? And is it responsible? The conservatives were trying to claim that it was responsible for poverty. Well, that, now that's a scientific claim. That's a positivist claim. If, the welfare, if welfare increases poverty, or at least does, doesn't decrease poverty, well, maybe we shouldn't have a welfare system. I would agree with that if that were the case. And a number of conservative economists and political scientists, unfortunately, to talk about my own discipline, um, begin to write work at, and one particular economist at the Manhattan Institute on this issue. And this is an economist named Charles Murray. I'm sorry, a political scientist named Charles Murray. And Murray claims that the reason why poverty is high in America and the reason why welfare isn't solving poverty in America is that non-white Americans are genetically inferior to white Americans, uh, that non-white Americans have a lower, lower levels of intelligence than, than white Americans. Now, Murray, Murray was an interesting figure. He actually wrote a book before this book. This book is called, called The Bell Curve, uh, which was actually an influential book and, and a book that, that's, that's you know, more, much more respected on, on, you know, on essentially the, the role of a family. It's called Losing Ground in American Politics. But then he writes this book, making this very, very stark claim of, ra of racial superiority that's quickly debunked by, any by scientists studying it. There's a book published about a year later by a group of, of, of experts on intelligence and, and genetics, which systematically, point by point, refutes every, every claim that Charles Murray makes. But because these zombie arguments kind of live on, he, has, he continues to be subsidized by the, by the conservative ecosystem and, in fact, promoted. He becomes a very powerful person in conservative politics uh, because he's making an argument, he's pushing on an open door, an argument that they believe in. And this argument becomes kind of the, the, the center of conservative opposition to welfare. Some of them are smart enough not to say it out loud, but th this was the most important 
work motivating conservative opposition to welfare, which was inherently racialized. They, they would do things like highlight African-American women who had multiple children who were receiving welfare benefits to, to help them take care of those multiple children. And they used that as a, as, as a means to attack the law. And it was very successful. The 1996 welfare reform is supported by Bill Clinton and, and many Democrats, among others, because they were so successful. And, and frankly, you know, managed to convince a lot of people on both sides of the, of the aisle that they were correct and, and dramatically cuts the welfare system. And today we have a shell of a, of a welfare system that provides essentially no cash aid. So the picture that you're painting is that from this birth moment in 1973, starting with the Heritage Foundation, but as you say, expanding to other institutions afterwards based on Heritage's successful model, we began to see this, this takeover, this increasingly engineered takeover of the intellectual foundation. And this really matters. This is where the ideas are coming from, where the justification is coming from. And as you say, there's this very complex, I like the word ecosystem of money, donors who have an agenda that's not necessarily an agenda that, that you would arrive at if your goal was, hey, we want to win the most elections by appealing to the center of American politics where most voters reside. What you're saying is that what starts to happen here, the strategy of these groups, is first take over the elites, take over the elected officials, and the voters will start to take their cues from them. Now, I'm not a political scientist, but my understanding is that there is a lot of research in your discipline to support the idea that the elites kind of go first, the elected officials go first. And I've quipped before in my own work that it, it kind of used to be that for a lot of voters, you decide on your positions on things first, then you decide on your party or which politician you would vote for. Now, and increasingly since the Gingrich Revolution in the 1990s, you decide on your party first and your positions on things follow from that. So is that, is that picture essentially right? That what starts to happen is this very clever infiltration at the top levels of government among elected officials of based on policy, based on conservative ideology, and that as this takeover proceeds, you start to see it funnel into what the politicians are saying, what they're offering in the way of policies. Voters take their cues from that. And before you know it, the center of gravity literally has shifted in American politics toward the agenda that these think tanks are pushing. So there, there's a couple of points here. So one, as I mentioned earlier, polarization of the voters that we can detect does not begin to increase until the 2010s. The polarization of elites begins in the 1970s. So something pushed the elites to go first. What caused voters to polarize in the 2010s is a more open question. I'm more persuaded by, by a book called Identity Crisis, which examined the 2016 election, that the, the cause was, was essentially voters reacting to Barack Obama. And that Barack Obama being, being a, an African-American and being the, the first African-American uh, to win the presidency really kind of created a much more racially polarized system than, than existed before. But that, that's a separate question, right? That happens much, much later. Here's what, I, what, what I, I want to say. So you have, there's a myth in American politics that everything is about elections, that every member of Congress is going to Congress every day and concerned about his or her reelection. And the reality is, is that most issues have no impact on reelection and most members of Congress are not vulnerable to, to losing their reelection. Many are, many are concerned about primary campaigns, many are in swing seats, but the vast majority of people 
on, an, on a day-to-day -day basis are making decisions that will not impact their reelection because frankly, none of us are paying attention. I, I, you know, I, I can only recently name the, the name of my member of Congress. I moved to Illinois a year ago and I can tell you my member of Congress is Danny Davis. And I only know that because I had to research it for my class that I'm teaching uh, and, and, and tell people. And one I'm of the great deep scientist. voices of Congress. He, he, I could listen to him all day. And I think a really impressive member of Congress, and I, I'm sorry I didn't know his name earlier, but I'm a political scientist who studies Congress. Right. I should have known that a long time ago. And, I'm, and, and most normal Americans have better things to do all day than to research their member of Congress and what they are doing on every little bill. Uh, and they are making hundreds of decisions over the course of a year. They are mostly guided by their own sense of what is right and wrong. They, they work very, very long hours. They spend a lot of time doing very unpleasant things like talking to random donors on the phone. And they do it because they, they you know, for the most part, because they, they think they're doing something important. And so what they believe is the right public policy is enormously important. Sometimes they believe it's the right public policy because they have strong ideological ideas. So you're not gonna convince Justin Amash to support you know, raising taxes, regardless of the outcome of raising taxes, regardless of what social benefit you might have to raising taxes. But, all, but most members of Congress, when they're dealing with an issue, they're doing something called problem solving. So when you think about problem solving, think about you know, what's controlling the agenda on any, at any given basis. For the most part, it's not you know, the priorities of members of Congress in their heart of hearts. It's stuff out in the world that is put on their table and they have to attend to. They don't have any choice but to, to, to attend to that problem. And they want to solve that problem. The deficit is high. COVID is hitting us. Climate change is coming. Our cities are flooding, whatever. Right? They, they need to pass some public policy right now to attend to that problem. It matters what they think will solve the problem. And if they think that something will solve the problem, they will support something to solve it. And so when you have a, a, you know, a, a very acute, very clear crisis like COVID in, in, in March, you know, you've got members of Congress on board to, to pass a lot, of, a lot of federal spending in order to solve that problem. Maybe they thought they would lose their reelection if they didn't do that. I think that they, they saw people dying around them and they saw you know, Tom Hanks you know, put a video out and they said, oh, crap, we gotta do something about this. And so they consulted experts and they did the right thing. The think tanks weren't very involved in this because it just happened too fast, right? They, they didn't you know, form coherent preferences, preferences in response to that. When you think about a problem that we all know about that's slow moving like climate change, the, the think tanks have convinced their co-partisans that their preferences are correct on, on climate change. So if you go all the way back to 2006, 2007, 2006, 2007, uh, there's a growing social consensus that we gotta do something about climate change. Al Gore put a movie out. There's a national conversation going on. There's a, a weird movie where the whole world uh, got, got cold called the, the Day After Tomorrow. And, and the George W. Bush administration is on board to do something about climate change. John McCain, who would a year later go on to be the, uh, the Republican nominee for president, has a bill with Lindsey Graham and John Kerry and Joe Lieberman to pass a cap and trade bill to, 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 to go after climate change. And this is the normal process working, right? So there's a problem. It is prioritized. Members of Congress come to an agreement and look for a solution. The role of a political party at that point is to balance interests, right? Some one party represents the oil interests, represents extractive industry states. They want one public policy, one, pol one party you know, represents a state with a lot of environmentalists in them, and so they want that public policy. And that's a normal process, a normal bargaining process that we would expect to see, but something changes. That is the conservative think tanks, particularly the Her Heritage Foundation and a couple of climate change specific conservative think tanks publish hundreds of reports in 2007, 2008, conv convincing their, their co-partisans that climate change isn't real, that efforts to address climate change will be enormously expensive, and that, that, that Democrats are really just doing this 
out of some interest in, in you know, in, in the renewable energy or something like that. There are hundreds of these reports and they all say basically the same thing. And they've all proven to be wrong in the long run. So for example, one of the reports that, that I cite in, in, in the book, it, it, it predicts the price of solar energy 10 years, 10 years from now. Which is an important important price because when we're projecting, you know, the, the, the we're projecting the cost of a climate change plan, it's important to know what the price was. And they were off by a factor of ten. That is, they overestimated what the price in 2020 of solar energy would be by ten times. That's just one example um, of this this motivated reasoning and these wrong predictions that Republicans believed. They and yet they work. Right. And yet they work. They 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 work so, again through this mechanism of. The, the think tanks control the, the elites in the set. By control, what I mean is they provide the, the inputs of how to, how to view the world, how to think about reality, how to understand basic facts and alternative facts, as Kellyanne Conway would say. And out of that comes these profound changes in the basic positions of the party. And that actually takes me to, to one thing that we haven't talked about yet, which is that in the early 2000s, there was a, an outgrowth of similar institutions on the left, a response of, we really need to have this kind of ecosystem in response to the, to the incredibly successful track record of heritage and these other institutions on the right. So I have a kind of tricky question about this part of the story. One of the robust, consistent findings of political science research in recent years is that we've seen polarization in American politics, right? That the two parties moving further and further apart. But one of the findings is that that movement has not been equal on both sides. It's been asymmetric to use a fancy word that they use in political science. Republicans have been moving much further right than Democrats have moved left. Now, look, this, this has gotten muddled in the public mind. We know this because of the success of people like Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and the squad. But the fact is that it's been asymmetric. A majority of Democrats still identify as moderate or conservative. The movement among Republicans has been much greater and much further. So here's the question. Is that kind of asymmetry something that we see in the think tank world? Do you see, do the well-known liberal think tanks adhere more to rigorous and less overtly partisan and biased analysis than the right-leaning think tanks? So I, I do a study in, in the book. And what I do is I take a bunch of think tank research and I, I compare the progressive think tank research, the conservative think tank research, and a bunch of nonpartisan research. And I, what I do is, is I just look at, at everyone making the prediction of the same event. They all, they all want to predict the same thing. And they say, okay, if we pass this bill, what's it going to do to the deficit? Or if we pass this bill, what's it going to do to economic growth, energy prices, et cetera? And I just compare the numbers. And so the nonpartisan think tanks, I say, okay, the nonpartisan organizations, think tanks, the Congressional Budget Office, et cetera, I say, okay, let's use them as a baseline. And let's compare what conservatives say on that issue and what, and what Democrats say on that issue, uh, what re Republicans and Democrats. And what you, what you find is they're both to the left or right of that center line, right? So it's not that, that Democrats are publishing something that is, uh, that, that, that is just you know, drawn from the center. Now, there are actually some of these Democratic think tanks which literally just do that. They literally just repeat what the center says. They just cite it and put their own kind of interpretation on it. But they are, there is research out there that they publish that's kind of Essentially, what I would say is the, the leftmost the left most credible uh, conclusion you can come to. They'll hire a well-respected economist who's going to produce a paper that's to the left of the Congressional Budget Office. Then if you look at the, the Republican-aligned think tanks, in particular the, Her the Heritage Foundation, there is some variation among the Republican-aligned think tanks here. 
But if you look at the Heritage Foundation, which is the largest and by far most important of these think tanks, their stuff is just far, far to the right, much, much farther to the, to the right than, than, to the, than the Democrats. So let me give you one example. During the 2013 comprehensive immigration reform debate, uh, there's this question of if we pass a comprehensive immigration reform bill, what will it do to economic growth? And, and, and importantly, what will it do then to the budget deficit? What will it cost to admit a lot of new immigrants at this point that it was a prioritization of high-skilled immigrants and then to legalize, to legalize undocumented immigrants? The Center for American Progress said that it's going to be about, it's going to get us about $300 billion over 10 years in new revenue because you got a lot of people who are coming onto the tax rolls. The, the, the Congressional Budget Office said something similar, about $100 billion in new revenue. The Heritage Foundation said that $6 trillion would be lost over, over the lifetime of the immigrants, not over 10 years, if you pass that bill. That bill relied on some of that dubious Charles Murray-esque, essentially genetic superiority data. In fact, the author of that, of that or one of the authors of that report was fired from the Heritage Foundation for being too racist. In wow. Yeah, he's got a job now at, I think, Newsmax. So he's still, he's still kicking around. But, but that, that report was so racist that it got him fired. Wow. Well, it's, I mean, it's a really fascinating picture you're painting. And look, just to be clear, you and I talked about this off the air as well. We've both worked and continue to work with people at all of these institutions at both the left and right, maybe not so much heritage, but I do a show called The Great Ideas Show where I regularly feature experts from AEI, from the Manhattan Institute, people who are very credible, very well-grounded researchers. They have a perspective, but there's, there's some value in that. But nonetheless, what you, what you are painting is just a really fascinating history of how we got to this moment. And I think a very compelling case that the catalyst for a lot of it starts in something that most Americans wouldn't pay attention to. It's, it's the policy. It's the way people think about the facts and reality and, and, and the impact of the policies that government undertakes. E.J. Fagan, thank you so much for joining us on Beyond Politics. And we're really looking forward to reading your book on this topic. Uh, thanks for having me.